Our uh, Bible reading this morning comes from Philippians 3, uh, verses 7 to 14. And Paul is writing here to the Philippian church. So it's Philippians 3, 7 to 14. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining forward what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Good morning, folks. My name is Mark. I'm one of the pastors here. It's great to have you with us. And uh, I'm really excited to be kicking off this um, series with us this morning. This is usually one of my favourite uh, moments in the year where we just get some time uh, to think about what we're doing uh, together for the rest of this year. Uh, so why don't I pray and we'll ask for God to, to help us make this time worthwhile. Let's pray together. Uh, Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your kindness in bringing us here today, in giving us your word which speaks of the Lord Jesus. Uh, thanks for giving us time to be able to pause and listen to you now. And God, I pray that you would please be with us by your spirit, helping us to understand your word and appropriating it into our lives. Lord, help us to be transformed by what we think about and read about and talk about today uh, so that we would be people who live for your glory uh, for 2020 and beyond. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, as, uh, as Matt has already mentioned, uh, this, this series that we're doing is called uh, 2020, Refocusing on our mission. And uh, I will make no apologies for making a 2020 vision kind of pun. I feel like most churches have been hanging out for this year to be able to make a pun and do a sermon series to do with 2020 vision. And so we got there first. Uh, that's what we're doing. The point, though, is that um, what this, these next two weeks are going to be about are helping us to think clearly about our mission as a church, uh, to strip away all the other things that might distract us and just to look with clear, fresh eyes on that thing that we are supposed to be committed to, our mission together, because it is very easy as a church, I think, to lose that focus, to get distracted. Uh, one of my sort of constant frustrations in life is that I'm somebody who always walks around with dirty glasses. Don't look too closely at them now, because uh, they're probably filthy. Uh, ever since kids came along in my life, the problem has gotten a lot worse, uh, but you will almost always see me with uh, fingerprint smudges or uh, you know, runny nose residue across my glasses from kids who've gotten up close and personal with me. Uh, if you wear glasses, though, you probably know this problem, maybe not quite so 
gross as mine, but uh, the problem that over time, glasses just, they collect those kind of fingerprints, those smudges, those oils that start to obscure our vision, don't they? And over time, if, you, if you're not careful about it, you end up looking out at the world as through a fog. And for me, it usually takes somebody to come along from the outside, usually it's my wife, Catherine, who tells me, Mark, you look disgusting, and clean your glasses, do something about it. And so, you know, give them a wipe, and when you put them back on, lo and behold, colours are vibrant again, and you know, you can see the details on people's faces, and all the things that you were missing out on seeing before, suddenly you can see because you've got clear lenses. Now, look, this is a trivial example, but I think that that problem of over time gradually being obscured from seeing that thing which you are supposed to be able to see, that's a problem that churches face, that organisations face, governments face, all sorts of people face, groups of people face that problem, and it's called mission creep. Maybe you've heard of that term before. It's the idea that a gradual... Uh, almost imperceptible kind of shift in our objectives over time builds up and builds up and builds up so that after a long time, you are so far from what you originally set out to achieve. You're, you're now focused on something else. It's called mission creep. It does happen to churches in the way that um, church culture builds up over time and practice builds up over time to sort of calcify a church uh, so that uh, it can be very true that a church can no longer be focused on the thing that they originally set out to focus on, their mission. And so really, these next two weeks are kind of an opportunity for us to take off our glasses and to wipe them clean, uh, to try and look clearly once again at our mission and to recalibrate ourselves, refocus ourselves on our mission as a church. And, and this passage, Philippians 3, is a great place to begin to do that because in this passage, the Apostle Paul, he shows us what he is focused on his life's mission. And he says to the church in Philippi and to us by extension, he says, I want you to be focused on that as well. Uh, in, in the passage, Philippians 3, we didn't read the verse, but in verse 15, the verse after where we finished, Paul says that all of us who are mature should take such a view of things. He wants us to have the same view of things as he does. What is that view? It's right in the heart of the passage, verse 10. Paul's desire is to know Christ, to know Christ. That's his life mission. Uh, that's why this is written on our wall as a church. It's why we say we're committed to this, because this is to be the focus of the church, to know Christ. And so we're going to dive into this today, trying to understand exactly what that means and understand what it looks like to really focus on knowing Christ. Uh, in order to understand this passage, though, we have to know something of the Apostle Paul's kind of background, his personal history and his conversion, because uh, if you know Philippians chapter 3, we didn't read this part of the passage, but immediately before where we started reading, Paul starts giving us his testimony, basically, about how he started out as a very legalistic, self-righteous Jewish person, a Pharisee the tribe of Israel, from people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, circumcised on the eighth day, zealous, persecuting the church. He lists off his accomplishments in verses 4 to 6. It basically, he's showing us his resume and he's saying, I had every uh, spiritual benefit in my name. Uh, this is how good I was in the eyes of the world. Self-righteous, a self-made man, surely good in the eyes of God. This is sort of his, his list of his accomplishments here. But we know that, that the Paul who wrote this letter is not the same Paul. He's a drastically changed man because what happened to him? He had an experience, didn't he? On the road to Damascus one day, 
uh, in the midst of his attempts to persecute the church, he had an encounter with the risen Lord Jesus. Jesus, after being resurrected from the dead, meets Paul and confronts him and reveals to Paul just how drastically wrong he's understood things. He he explains to Paul just how drastically he's misunderstood who Jesus is. Jesus is not this evil one who's to be stomped out. He is the reigning Lord of glory, and Paul had misunderstood that. But he'd also misunderstood who he was himself. He was not a self-righteous man, as it turned out. Paul came to understand he was an utterly sinful man, had no right standing before God. He discovered as he met Jesus that day that the only righteousness that he could ever attain is the righteousness that could be given to him as a gift. Nothing that he could merit, nothing he could earn, nothing that he could aim to reach God on his own standing. It had to be given as a gift. And so that's Paul's conversion that happens right there. He discovers, and he writes there, he paraphrases it in verse 9, he discovers a righteousness that does not come from the law, but that comes through faith in Christ, comes from God on the basis of faith. This is the good news of the gospel that Paul came to understand. It's what we sang about just a few minutes ago, that the God of ages stepped down from glory to wear our sin and bear our shame. That's the good news of the gospel. That's what changed Paul's life. It freed him. He found forgiveness. He was perfectly accepted by God on the basis of Jesus' merits, loved eternally by the Father, no fear of condemnation. That's the good news of the gospel. And after Paul discovered that good news, after he had that experience, his world was changed. He now looked at the world through new lenses, if you like. And he tells us right in our passage from verse 7 what the world now looks like to him now that he knows the gospel. See what he says there in verse 7. He says, whatever were gains to me, those those past things, my righteous uh, religious accomplishments, uh, they are loss to me now. And he kind of uses this, this accounting language, right? Gain and loss, profit and loss. It's the idea that uh, Paul recognises now that whatever he thought you know, put him in the black with God, he now sees, actually, it put him in the red. Uh, that those religious activities and those duties that he thought were valuable in God's sight, he now counts them as loss. All those things in his past. But it's more than that as well, isn't it? See what he says in verse 8 there? He says, what is more, I consider... Everything a loss, not just the stuff in his past, those, those righteous accomplishments, everything now in his life, everything that's currently in his life, everything that's in his life in the future, what is it to Paul through these clear gospel lenses? It's loss. It, it's worthless. Everything. Think what that entails. All of his accomplishments, all of his good works, all of his possessions, whatever they might have been, all of his friends, All of his family, everything, Paul says, in his life is now loss. And in fact, he uses a stronger word than that. It's not just that he considers these things as loss. It says actually that he counts them as garbage. And garbage is a polite way to translate that word. The Greek word is skubalon. And it's a word which basically means refuse or excrement. It's not a pretty word. And that's the comparison Paul is is saying now. Now that I look out at the world... Everything else that I see is as scubalon to me. Compared to? Compared to what? Compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. You see what's happened for Paul? Is that he has found something of such exceeding value that everything else now just looks like garbage in comparison. He's met Jesus. He's been given a righteousness that he could never hope to attain for himself. 
And now everything in this world is dull and unappealing by comparison. It makes me think of the, the parable that Jesus told of the man who finds the hidden treasure in a field. And in joy, he runs back home and he sells everything that he has so that he can go back and buy that field and obtain that treasure. And Jesus says, thus is the kingdom of God. And, and that's what's happened for Paul, isn't it? He has found this treasure in Christ, this free gift of righteousness. And now he says he's happy to have lost everything for Christ's sake in order that he may gain Christ. What a testimony this is from Paul, this surpassing worth that he recognises in Christ Jesus, his Lord. Now, I think it's, it's just worth pausing at this point of the passage and just doing a little bit of a reflection exercise for ourselves. It's worth reflecting on whether we esteem Jesus, whether we value Jesus as much as Paul does. Do we attribute to Jesus a surpassing worth that makes everything else look like scubalon in comparison? Is that our attitude this morning? One way to maybe think about that in your own life is to ask the question, well, is there anything in my life that's more non-negotiable than Jesus is? Is there anything in my life that I'm more committed to over and above my commitment to Jesus? You know, any, any aspiration, any hobby, any commitment, any possession, any person in my life who comes before Jesus? Because if there is, if you, can, if you can answer that question and find something or someone in your life who fits that category, then essentially what you're saying is that you consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing worth of owning your own home. Or that you consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing worth of your kid's education. Or that you consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing worth of the respect of my family. That all of those things, good as they may be, are worth more to you than Jesus is. Do you know, if, if we're seeing the world rightly, if we're seeing the world as Paul sees it, through gospel lenses, then we will recognise that all of those good other things in our life, everything else in our life, is really just as scubalon in comparison to knowing Christ Jesus, our Lord. If we see the world through clean lenses, then we're going to be those kind of people who can mean the words that we sing in that hymn, Be Thou My Vision. Remember that, that great hymn, Be Thou My Vision, O Lord of my heart, naught be all else to me, save that Thou art. Thou and Thou only, first in my heart, high King of heaven, my treasure Thou art. If you see the world through clean gospel lenses, that's true for you. Top of the list, number one with a bullet, no rivals, no equals, that's where Jesus belongs in our life. Is that where he is for you this morning? It is for Paul. And it's because Paul recognises that, because he sees the surpassing worth of Jesus, that I, Paul has become fixated with Jesus. Uh, he, he can't look away from Jesus anymore. He's obsessed with Jesus at this point. Um, I want to introduce you to a painting. Uh, this painting is called the Ghent Altarpiece. It's a collection of 15th century artworks from a cathedral in Belgium. Uh, if we go to the next photo, you'll see a clearer picture of uh, kind of what that looks like. Um, this painting went viral on the internet this week, which was very unpredicted. Not often that a 15th century Christian artwork goes viral, but this one did. The reason being uh, that some art restorers had recently been working on uh, restoring all of these 600-year-old 
uh, paintings to their original glory because over the years, artists will come along and touch it up and try and change things. And so the art restorer said, no, let's strip that all back and go back to the original, what it first looked like when the, the uh, first artist painted it. And, and the bit of this painting that went viral is that bottom uh, picture there. This is a zoomed-in version of it. You can tell what it is. It's a, a, an image of heaven. Uh, the heavenly host gathered around a lamb who, if you zoom in on that, he's pouring out blood into a chalice. This is Jesus, who is the lamb who was slain. Now, uh, if we zoom in one more time, here is the face of the lamb. This is the bit of the painting that went viral. Okay? This was the, the face of the lamb as it looked like about a year ago, had, having been touched up over the centuries and modified and changed. Now, when the art restorers stripped it all back, uh, they discovered the original face of the lamb was a little bit more surprising. If we go to the next photo, that's what the lamb originally looked like. And uh, I don't know about you, but I find that picture deeply unsettling. There is something very off about a lamb that looks that human, I think. One of the things that people on the internet noted this week is that uh, a lamb is, a, is prey. It's not a predator, right? And so lambs are supposed to have their eyes on the side of their head. Predators have their eyes on the front of the head, but this one has his eyes on the front of his head. So you're getting a very kind of dangerous message about kind of who this lamb is. It's very freaky looking. And so the internet had a lot of fun with this lamb this week. And lots of jokes and comparisons were made. Maybe Maybe uh, Mark Zuckerberg kind of rings some bells and you're seeing some resemblances there. Mr. Bean's attempt to touch up the Mona Lisa might be ringing a few bells as well. But if we can just go back to the lamb, thank you. The reason why this went viral, the reason why hundreds of thousands of people were talking about this this week is because of the steely-eyed gaze of this lamb. There was this feeling that when you, when you see this picture, you're not just looking at the lamb, the lamb's looking at you. And it sees right through you. And no matter where you go in the room, you know, the eyes of the lamb are always on you. It's one of those kind of paintings, right? People reported not being able to get this image out of their head. They were fixated on it. They couldn't look away. They were captivated by the lamb, by Jesus. Isn't that an incredible thing to happen? Now, uh, I realise this might be a bit of a long walk to get to my point, but in a very similar but less terrifying kind of a way, when you see Jesus as he is, as the Lamb of God who's been slain for you to give you the righteousness that you could never earn for yourself, when you see that clearly, you become captivated by Jesus. Do you know, that's what happens in the heart of a Christian who understands truly who Jesus is. You can't look away from him anymore. Uh, that is what has happened to Paul. And so we come to the heart of the passage, verse 10. This is why Paul now says, because I've understood who Jesus is, because I understand his surpassing worth, verse 10, I want to know Christ. I'm focusing on him. I want to know Jesus. Now, like on one level, that might sound a bit redundant because clearly Paul already knows Jesus. He met Jesus. He understands who Jesus is. But I think the sense of what he's saying here is that uh, he wants to know Jesus more, right? Know more of Jesus. In, all throughout the New Testament, Christians are time and time again referred to as those people who know Jesus. So maybe you can think of John chapter 10, Jesus saying, I am the good shepherd and I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Right? He's talking about that kind of relational, intimate kind of a knowledge. It's not just knowing about Jesus. No, salvation is knowing him personally, knowing the lamb, knowing the shepherd, if you will, having a relationship with him. Uh, the Old Testament, too, it uses this word know in a very significant kind of a way to, to talk about a very deep, intimate kind of knowledge. 
So you might know, for instance, that uh, when the Old Testament talks about a husband and a wife coming together, that the word it will use is the word know. So the husband knew his wife. It's talking about the, the closest and deepest form of union that you can have. And so here is Paul using this very potent word and saying, I want to know Jesus. I want to be closer to Jesus, relationally, clo- as close as I possibly can be to him. Now, I realise that that's quite, um, that's quite abstract, isn't it? It's quite intangible. What does that actually look like, to, to know Jesus in that close, relational, kind of intimate sense? You know, uh, is this about having some kind of warm, fuzzy feelings every time you think about Jesus? You know, you close your eyes and butterflies. In your, is that knowing Jesus closely? Well, maybe, but I think what Paul has got in mind here is actually something a lot more concrete when he thinks about what it looks like to know Jesus. Because have a look at what he says there in verse 10. He goes on. He says, I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings. I think what Paul is talking about here is walking in newness of life, you see, being kind of animated by the resurrection power of Jesus, which lives in him so that he can spend his life, live his life in service to God, bringing glory to him just as Jesus did as he lay down his life and suffered on the cross. That's kind of how Paul describes his life throughout the book of Philippians, actually, as like a drink offering that's being poured out in service to God. He's expending his very life as he serves the cause of the gospel. And I think what Paul is saying here is that 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 kind of a life, that kind of a life where you, you live for Jesus, you deny yourself, you take up your cross, you work to bring glory to God, you rely on the empowerment of Jesus to do so, that that is what it looks like to know Christ. That is a life in close, intimate fellowship with Jesus. And so do understand, friends, when we as a church, WBC, talk about we want to know Christ and make him, we want to know Christ, what do we mean by that? We mean this. I mean living a new life, walking in newness of life. If I had to try and kind of spell it out as simply and as clearly as I possibly could, here's a little definition for you of what I think it means to know Christ. To know Christ means walking with Jesus as he makes us more like him. That's how you know if you know Jesus. Are you walking with him as he makes you more like him? Now, if anyone ever asks you, you know, what does your church mission statement actually mean? Now you know. <laughs> walking with Jesus, at least you know what the first half looks like, means. Uh, walking with Jesus as he makes us more like him. Now, on a practical level, that looks like any number of things. 10 million times 10 million ways that we need to be reformed and shaped to be more like Jesus. To have our loves match Jesus' loves. To have our hatred match Jesus' hatred to have our hopes and aspirations and dreams and longings echo those of Jesus. We've got to be reshaped to be like Jesus, to delight ourselves in God's purpose, in living our lives solely for the glory of God. It's a whole-of-life overhaul where no part of your life remains the same, and gradually you become more and more like your Saviour. It's a big change. And Paul is honest here in Philippians chapter 3 that that kind of a change in someone's life, becoming more like Jesus, it's not going to be quick and it's not going to be easy. (laughs) That's what he says. Let's have a read uh, what he says in verses 12 to 14. Paul says, Not that I've already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. 
Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ. I mean, just look at the language he uses there. I press on. I forget what is behind. I strain towards what is ahead. The sense of this is that Paul is saying, if you want to grow in Christ... If that's your aspiration, if that's your focus, you're going to have to break a holy sweat to do it. It's not going to come easily. Some elbow grease is required. So let me challenge you here today, friends. If you like the sound of this, you like the thought of being closer to Jesus, you want to know him more, then let me tell you very plainly, that's not going to happen unless you do something about it. You, you won't know Jesus more unless you do something about it and unless you break a holy sweat to do it, unless you press forward, unless you strain, unless you exert yourself towards that cause. I love the way Paul is honest about his own need to do that as well here. Uh, he, he confesses in verse 15 that even he has got room to grow here. Uh, look at uh, verse 15 for you. It'll come up on the screen. Paul says, All of us then who are mature should take such a view of things. We all need to press on. Even the mature Christians need to press on towards what is ahead. Keep going. You know, no Christian ever reaches retirement age. Sorry to tell you that. There's no long service leave. There's, there is no end to your growth as a Christian until the Lord chooses to take you home. And so actually, it, it's a really healthy Christian attitude to be hungry to know more of Jesus. You know, if, you're, if you ever find yourself in a place where you're just content with where you are spiritually, you, know, you just want to put your feet up and have a cup of tea and you can't see any ways that you still need to grow in Christ, can I warn you that that's actually an unhealthy place to be, to not recognise your own need for growth. It, it's one of the strange paradoxes of the Christian life, isn't it? That before our conversion, uh, we are discontented materially in the world, right? We're always searching for something else, some other accomplishment, some possession to achieve, to make ourselves happy, to fill us up. We're discontent materially, but we're actually quite content spiritually because we don't really think about spiritual things. We're complacent about spiritual matters. But when, when you are saved, when you, you understand the gospel, that switches, doesn't it? You actually become quite content materially because your, your physical situation in life really doesn't matter that much anymore. But you become profoundly discontent spiritually because you have a hunger now to know more of Christ, to have deeper fellowship with him. To be born again really is to have a spiritual dissatisfaction that makes you want to have more of Christ. That's Paul's focus. That's his vision for his life, strenuously pursuing knowing Jesus more. And it should be our focus too. Now my hope is that as we remind ourselves of that reality today, that what's going on for us is that some of those smudges and smears are being wiped away from our lenses. Uh, those things that might stop us from focusing on that which is most important. Because the truth is, it is really easy to lose focus, isn't it? Let's be honest as a Christian, that, that mission of knowing Christ more deeply it falls by the wayside very easily, doesn't it? As we get busy, as we get tired, as we get lazy. Before you know it, you find yourself just, you know, you're attending church uh, for the most part, kind of regularly. Maybe you, you're reading the Bible. You're reading familiar parts of the Bible. There's no, no point exploring parts you haven't read before. 
and it's not really that interesting to you anymore. You're praying the same kind of prayers that you've been praying for years. You're not really thinking about them anymore. And you're just generally not focused on growing in Christ, making progress in your faith. You've resigned yourself to the fact that the Christian that you are today is more or less going to be the Christian that you are when you die. It's so easy, friends, to slip into that kind of complacent attitude when it comes to, to our mission of knowing Christ. So I reckon that we have to take steps to avoid it. We have to be intentional to avoid the gravity pull towards that complacency. So if you want to know Christ more in 2020, if you're on board with this mission that we say we're about here at WBC, then I've got three suggestions of steps that you should think about taking this year. Three suggestions. If you are committed to walking with Jesus this year as he makes you more like himself, then here are a few things that you could do this year. First suggestion I've got for you is that I think you ought to invest in relationships. If you want to know Christ more this year, you ought to invest in relationships with people here at church. Now, that might sound counterintuitive, but let me try and explain why I think that's a necessary step for growing in Christ. Uh, and it's because of the difference between a, a congregation and an aggregation. Do you know the difference between these two things? A congregation and an aggregation. An aggregation is just a group of individual things that come together to be in the same proximity together. Maybe a group of people who come together for an event, to listen to a speaker, something like that. A congregation is very different, right? So this might help you think about it. An aggregation is like a bag of marbles, right? Lots of things very close together, but they're all just kind of slip sliding all over each other. They're not connected at all. Whereas a, a congregation is like a bunch of grapes, right? Individuals, yes, but organically related and connected to each other. You see the difference? A community, a congregation, uh, is a group of people where uh, all of the aspects of the members' lives touch one another. It's a group of people who laugh together, read together, pray together, love together, mourn together, rejoice together, live together. That's a congregation. And the depth and intimacy of relationship that a congregation gives you, that, that real community is absolutely vital if you want to grow in Christ. Here's what C.S. Lewis said about this in his little book, Mere Christianity. He said, Christ works on us in all sorts of ways, but above all, he works on us through each other. That's quite profound. That God works on you to make you more like Jesus in all sorts of ways, but above all, he works on us through each other. That's why it's not enough to kind of just be a regular church attender. It, it, you can't think that being a Lone Ranger Christian where you know, you'll just kind of go and do your own little devotional thing each day and not pay attention to anybody else in the world, you can't think that that's going to change you to be more like Jesus. It won't. You're, you're wrong if you think that. Uh, John Wesley famously said that the Bible knows nothing of solitary religion. You must be in real, meaningful relationships with other believers which allow for meaningful involvement in one another's lives if you want to grow. Relationships, they're the first essential ingredient if you want to grow in Christ this year. So let me challenge you this morning. Are you going to commit to investing in relationships at WBC this year? It wouldn't require a huge amount of your time, half an hour a week, to get to know somebody new in this congregation, to hear their story and to share some of yours. Half an hour a week to strengthen existing friendships and connections that you already have within this body a huge amount of time, but investing in relationships like that is going to create the context 
for you to grow as a Christian. It's crucial. That's my first suggestion. My second suggestion, and maybe if you know me at all, you might have seen this one coming. If you want to grow in Christ this year, you really should join a home group. Uh, you really should join a home group. Uh, we did a survey uh, towards the end of last year that you might remember where we asked hundreds of people in our church a long list of questions to be able to figure out kind of where we are as a church, how we're we going and that sort of thing. And we asked the question uh, in that survey, over the last year, do you believe you've grown in your Christian faith? Now, one of the interesting results that we discovered was that the strongest predictor of how you answered the Christian growth question was whether you were in a home group or not. If you were in a home group, you were much more likely to say that you had much growth in your Christian faith than if you weren't in a home group. That to me tells me that home groups are an important piece of growing in Christ. Just one other little bonus thing I'll throw at you. We also asked a question, you may remember, do you have a strong sense of belonging in your congregation? It was trying to get an idea of whether you've got you know, strong connections and relationships. Another significant predictor on how you answer that question, whether you're in a home group. And so just think about that. If I could offer you a method for you to grow in Christ this year, grow in your faith, and for you to strengthen relationships and connections within this congregation, and if I could offer that to you for free, would you take it? Because that's what a home group is. I mean, it, it sounds too good to be true, doesn't it, that a home group might help you in all those kind of ways. And it kind of is, because I'm kind of being cheeky. Home groups are not free. I don't want to give the impression that a home group is free. A home group has a cost. And that cost is commitment. Commitment is what it will cost you if you want to be in a home group that will help you grow and help you build connections at WBC. The commitment of turning up every week. Uh, The commitment of reading and engaging with God's word, of opening your life with other people, being vulnerable with them, committing to pray hard for them, doing life together. It'll cost you all those kinds of things if you want to join a home group. And if you try and avoid that cost, you try and do a home group on the cheap, with no commitment, no openness, no transparency, no vulnerability, no engagement, then you shouldn't expect that you'll grow in a home group like that. Because just like being in a home group in and of itself doesn't magically make you grow any more than standing in a garage magically makes you a car, if you want to participate in the home group, then you've got to pay the cost. And I want to urge you to do that, friends. If you're already in a home group, good on you. Stay in that group, keep going, commit, and work hard at growing this year. But if, if... you've always just kind of been on the outer of a group at WBC, then why not make this the year that you choose to pay that cost and to get involved and to grow as a Christian and to strengthen your connections here at WBC? I think you'll be glad that you did. That's my second suggestion. Third suggestion, if you want to you know Christ, you want to know the resurrection power of Jesus at work, enabling you to serve God, then a great way to do that, my third suggestion, is for you to serve in ministry serving a ministry here at WBC. Uh, The survey, again, also told us that second only to home groups as a predictor for whether you're growing as a Christian and whether you feel connected here, the second highest ranking influence was whether you serve in a ministry here at WBC. Now, that might kind of sound surprising to you. Why would serving in a ministry make me grow as a Christian? I think it's because of this. When you serve in a ministry, you are confronted 
constantly with your own weakness and inability. <laughs> At least this is my experience in ministry. That day by day, week by week, I find out that I don't have it in me to achieve the thing that I'm being asked to do. And so I constantly have to depend upon Jesus. I'm being forced to run to him to discover that he's dependable and that he's faithful and that he'll see me through and that he's enough. And ministry just throws those kind of opportunities at you regularly. It kind of accelerates your faith and your trust in God like nothing else can. And now, look, I, um, I realise that that's a pretty poor sales pitch for, you know, come and volunteer in ministry. You'll feel inadequate and really weak, and that'll be great for you. But it's the truth. It really is the truth. And it will be good for helping you to know Christ more. You know, we, ha- we have so many opportunities for people to get involved in stuff, in ministries here at WBC. There are countless things that you could do. Uh, you could get involved in helping teach the Sunday school program for all our young people here on Sundays. We are constantly in need of helpers for that. We'd love to talk to you if, that, if you're interested in that. You could come and help teach ESL during the week. Uh, you could join the welcoming team on a Sunday to help integrate new people into our life together. You could get involved in our outreach, our evangelistic course, the Discover course. We'd love to chat to you if you're keen on that. You could use your creative gifts in the creative team, your tech skills in the tech team, your music skills in the music team. You could get involved in pastoral care. There is really just an endless list of opportunities for you to get involved in. And I promise you, there is something to suit everybody, to suit the gifts that God has given you. Now, if you don't know uh, how to go about getting involved, you don't know who to speak to, just come and chat to one of the pastors. We'll point you in the right direction uh, for somebody to speak to. But I will say, if, if you are interested, if that sounds like something you would be keen on, then please do come along this Saturday to the Ministry Summit, where we're going to gather, and sort of it'll be a great on-ramp for you to start serving in ministry here at WBC. So, uh, I'm out of time. Those are my three suggestions for you, if you want to grow in your faith Uh, and know Christ more deeply this year. Invest in relationships, join a home group, serve in a ministry. They're certainly not the only three things that you can do to stay focused on knowing Christ, but I reckon they're a good start. And kind of being intentional about this, it means that you know a year from now, when we revisit our mission statement, we're going to be less likely to have kind of crept away and wasted our time focusing on lesser things. Knowing Jesus is of surpassing worth, friends, let's count everything else in our lives as a loss by comparison. Let's, let's press on together. Let's strain towards the prize. Let's break a holy sweat as we do it and let, as we walk with Jesus and become more like him. Let me pray for us. Almighty God, we thank you so much for your, the righteousness that you've given us for free through faith in Christ. Lord, this is of inestimable worth. You are of inestimable worth. And so help us to see you clearly so that you would be first in our hearts. God, we want to know you more. We want to be closer with you this year. So please work in us. Help us, empower us by your spirit to exert ourselves and strain forward to do whatever it takes, to commit to whatever we need to commit to so that we would grow to be more like your son, Jesus. We love you and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.